The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Shall I bleed you a little more? Englehart. Speak up. When are you going to tell me where the barons are meeting? When the Magna Carta is signed, you will be among the first to be tried by its terms. <laughs> for serving my king? The laws will make each man responsible for his own actions. You won't live to see that day. Welcome everyone. It's Thursday, March 28th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be The signing of Magna Carta was possibly the most significant step in the right direction in the history of Western civilization, and the idea of individualism, where each man is responsible for his own actions with equal rights before and under the law, is perhaps the very idea that defines Western civilization. Properly placed on the political polarity of left and right, individualism is on the right side of that polarity, while collectivism, where rights defined according to a particular group to which one belongs, is on the left side of the political polarity. Now, why do I keep repeating this message? Am I becoming obsessed with constantly defining left and right and with categorizing every political principle and ideal under the labels of left and right? Yeah, I am. (laughs) But there's a good reason for this, because you're obsessed with it. It's because everybody in politics is obsessed with these labels, but for very different reasons. And that's what we'll be looking at today. Left and right, from terrorism to climate change. Right after we remind you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism in a world desperately in need of learning about both. And of course, to have that kind of discussion requires an environment of freedom of speech, something that I think we've now learned does not exist in New Zealand. You know, on the heels of what we discussed on the show last week, the Christchurch shootings in New Zealand, it's absolutely disappointing and alarming to see how various government and state officials have reacted to the crime. Their attempts to quell and censor any public discussions of terrorism and the question of political Islam are exactly the opposite of what would be the right thing to do in this situation. No sooner had the tragic events in New Zealand unfolded than the mainstream media instantly politicized its narrative surrounding the terrorist attack. The media pulled out its most powerful weapon, which I called the label gun, relying on the term right-wing as a pejorative. The label gun is a political weapon that shoots right-wing labels at those who present any threat to the left. Thus, Brenton Tarrant was immediately labeled a right-wing terrorist by the mainstream media, despite all the available evidence making it abundantly clear that Tarrant is motivated and driven by leftist ideologies and goals. 
The nation with the closest political and social values to my own is the People's Republic of China, wrote Tarrant in his manifesto. Words not unlike those heard in Canada from Canada's leftist Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, which of course makes the shooter a right-winger in the eyes of the media. Calling himself an environmentalist, a doctrine of the left, and the fascist, also an ideology on the left, Tarrant expressed his outright hatred for conservatism, for free markets, and for capitalism, which are all associated with the right. But of course, this makes him a right-winger in the eyes of the media. And despite the fact that about Donald Trump, he wrote, quote, As a policymaker and leader, dear God, no, end quote, the mainstream media has reported that Tarrant praised, quote, unquote, Trump based on his observation that Trump is white, as a symbol of white identity. This is not praised by any stretch of the imagination, except in the imagination of the mainstream media. Tarrant is, of course, a right-winger. And on and on and on go the persistent and never-ending lies and misrepresentations of our so-called fourth estate, all wrapped up in the convenient label of right-wing. Take, for example, this from the March 20th London Free Press headline reads, Australia's far-right extremism inbred. <laughs> Where Gwen Dyer writes, quote, White Australian settlers had a relatively easy time subjugating poorly armed Aboriginal people who lived in small groups and were divided by 600 different languages. That is the tradition Brenton Tarrant comes from long before he logged on to various white supremacist websites. So, no surprise, really, end quote. Wow. Quote, extreme right-wing terrorism, mostly of the white nationalist variety, is becoming as big a problem as Islamist terrorism in many places. You know, he offers no example of just who the far-right extremists he might be talking about were, but if they're as far-right as the New Zealand shooter, then we know that far-right is just left. Here are some other examples of what not to do in reaction to events like the New Zealand shooting. Got this one from New York Times, of all places. Headline, New Zealand bans the Christchurch Suspects Manifesto. It was published on March 22nd, and it reads, quote, Hoping to limit the spread of hateful ideas attributed to the suspect accused of the Christchurch killings, New Zealand classified his so-called manifesto as objectionable, quote-unquote, on Saturday, making it a crime to possess or distribute it anywhere in the country. Now, we found his manifesto objectionable as well on our show last week because it's full of left-wing ideologies. Everything from eco-fascism to communism to racism. The same offensive crap I read and hear about on the daily news and in the mainstream media. And in the very paper reporting this news item. Objectionable. Quote, people who have downloaded this document or printed it should destroy any copies, said David Shanks, the chief censor in New Zealand's Department of Internal Affairs. There's an important distinction to be made between hate speech, which may be rejected by many right-thinking people, but which is legal to express, and this type of publication, which is deliberately constructed to inspire further murder and terrorism, Mr. Shanks said. It crosses the line. The ruling is part of a wider strategy by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern to undermine the attempts by the suspect, Brenton Harrison Tarrant, to gain global notoriety, which of course was not even his interest. He didn't even put his name on that document. 
She has pledged never to utter his name publicly and to press platforms like Facebook to deny access worldwide to the manifesto, which was published just before the slaughter of 50 people in two mosques. Well, yes, there's no question that the manifesto crossed the line of what is acceptable. I don't doubt that for a minute, but its author has already been arrested. Because, I mean, if you're going to publicize and print that you're going to kill someone, that is grounds enough for your arrest. It's not grounds to censor your intentions from the very people who need to know about these threats. That's what's going on here. But if a document that crosses the line because it justifies acts of murder and violence against identified groups, quote-unquote, is therefore worthy of censorship and imprisonment in New Zealand, then you have to assume that the Koran and other Islamic documents are also illegal in New Zealand. I mean, the constant spewing of hatreds towards Jews and calls to eliminate them are about as objectionable as it gets. Mein Kampf? How about that? Most of history is a written record of mankind's hatreds and conflicts. That's what it's all about. And this so-called manifesto is now a historical record, and any member of the public should have the freedom to access it without fear of their own government's threats or punishments. That's just outrageous. I wouldn't censor any of these documents. My ignorance is not bliss when it comes to trying to understand what makes these kinds of ideas attractive to people and what makes those people tick, and moreover, what makes these ideas so dangerous. found this article online with the headline, New Zealand threatens 10 years in prison for possessing mosque shooting video. Web hosts warned, dissenter banned by Tyler Durden on Monday, March 18th. New Zealand authorities have reminded citizens that they face up to 10 years in prison for knowingly possessing a copy of the mosque's shooting video and up to 14 years in prison for sharing it. Corporations face an additional $200,000 fine. This is outrageous, utterly outrageous. On Saturday, journalist Nick Munro reported that New Zealand police have warned citizens that they face imprisonment for distributing the video. While popular New Zealand Facebook group Wellington Live notes that New Zealand police would like to remind the public that it is an offense to share an objectionable publication, which includes the horrific video from yesterday's attack. If you see this video, report it immediately. Do not download it. Do not share it. If you are found to have a copy of the video or to have shared it, you face fines and potential imprisonment, end quote. I myself have not seen the video, nor do I have any desire to see it, but I know many others who have seen it, and their descriptions are more than enough for me. Of course it's an objectionable publication, so are most daily newspapers. Are the, are the pictures of injured and, and maimed people in the papers going to be banned too? Imagine the contempt that the New Zealand government has for its own citizens. The fact that the country even has laws of this nature is contemptible in and of itself. Shame on New Zealand. Its government is throwing fuel on the fires that it is supposed to be working hard to put out. By confronting the ideologies and actions in these publications with a proper moral condemnation, not by, by banning them. Holy smokes. And you wonder why things are getting worse. Here in London, according to Dan Brown in the London Free Press, headline rallies condemn hatred and urge action. Londoners came together at two rallies to speak out against hatred and grieve the attack Friday on mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. Among the speakers was New Democrat MPP for London West Peggy Sattler, who had blunt words for the crowd. 
Quote, Islamophobia kills. It must stop, she said. The political rhetoric is so charged. We must do the work on a daily basis to challenge Islamophobia. Wow, talk about rhetoric. The students heard from speakers such as Dana Murad, a first-year Muslim engineering student. They're trying to cower us away from our beliefs. The attack over there was horrific. Well, Islam is about politics, not about religious beliefs, and no one's religious beliefs have ever been under attack, regardless of all of the rhetoric that we're getting from the left. The only thing I've ever seen that could be called Islamophobia is the fear our politicians exhibit in always attempting to stop those on the right from discussing the issue in its proper context, which is political. Moreover, you can't deny that politicians on the left, like Peggy Sattler, operate on the same basic collectivist principles as political Islam, which too is on the left. And individualism and freedom are not part of Islam. Political Islam and democracy are incompatible, and to call that very statement an expression of Islamophobia is another example of using the label gun to shoot the messenger instead of addressing and speaking to the message itself. Islam is pure collectivism, just like the values of the NDP and of Peggy Sattler. Individualism is not what these folks are about. And then I, then I read about this, this event here, University cancels atheist speech. New Zealand attacks cited by Tristan Hopper in the National Post on March 21st, quote, citing the recent anti-Muslim attacks in New Zealand, a Calgary university suddenly canceled an event by Armin Navabi, an Iranian-Canadian atheist activist who was scheduled to deliver a talk critical of Islam. I've been deplatformed again, wrote Navabi in a Wednesday tweet. The event scheduled for Thursday afternoon was entitled The Case Against Islamic Reform, hosted as part of a speaker series organized by the Atheist Society of Calgary. It was to be held at Mount Royal University. The Atheist Society has since said the cancellation was akin to acceding to the wishes of the New Zealand gunmen, and they're right about that. Quote, we feel that to cancel this event communicates to terrorists in general that these tactics will accomplish their objectives, end quote. They wrote in an online post notifying attendees of the cancellation. Mount Royal University wrote that we would absolutely have the speaker come to our campus at another time, end quote. Although by the time you get to the end of the article, you find out that that turned out to be a false promise since, quote, Navabi will still be speaking in Calgary, but not on property owned by Mount Royal University. You see what's going on here? This was the second time in a month that Navabi has been involved in a controversy about on-campus free speech. He was recently the subject of a feature article in Cherwell, a weekly student paper published by students at Oxford University. However, the article was withheld from online publication on the grounds of his comments about atheism and against Islam, quote, might be considered offensive. Wow. The paper's features editor, Freddie Hayward, resigned in protest and in an op-ed for the New Statesman warned that, quote, an illiberal tide is sweeping British universities. What counts as an acceptable view seems to have narrowed to such an extent that even liberal views, based in fact, are deemed too offensive to be published, he wrote. You know, amazingly, even as Mount Royal University officials were saying that the timing of the talk was inappropriate because of what happened in, in New Zealand, Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau was saying that then was the perfect time to spread his message of multiculturalism and open border immigration. What better time, right? 
Now, I see no difference, as I said last week, in the obsession over race between the two opposing camps. To believe in one single race that should be forcibly segregated from each other, like the terrorists did, is no less racist than insisting in a racially defined society of diversity like Trudeau does. It's one set of racists against another. No person who's an individualist thinks in either of these two unacceptable ways. We don't think about race at all. I grew up in a world where most people were utterly blind to race and were encouraged to be so. But today's racists, where did they all come from? They will have none of this. The left's war of words using the label gun, it's just as relevant in the climate change debate where the necessary and legitimate use of labels has similarly been undermined by tactics of the left. Now, this original March 6th Breitbart News Tonight podcast interview with Greenpeace co-founder Patrick Moore is much longer than the audio bite I'll be sharing with you here. His book, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, has been causing much controversy, and he too has been subject to censorship and deplatforming efforts. His comments on the environment and the environmental movement were right on. But what caught my attention was his use of the political terms left, right, and center in his attempt to define the polarization of the issue. By the mid-1980s, Greenpeace had drifted from the original concept of green and peace, meaning environment and people. We cared about people and had a humanitarian orientation as well as an environmental one. And, and now humans were being characterized as the enemies of nature, as if there was too many of us and there shouldn't be so many and people shouldn't have children. And so I don't believe any of that stuff. And at, a, at the highest level, I had to get out of Greenpeace. We basically got hijacked by extreme leftists or eco-fascists, as they are sometimes referred to today, because I was one of the main spokespeople for Greenpeace for 15 years back in the day. We did a lot of good stuff, but it went bad. And today, now, I see a potential turning point. It has nothing to do with Republicans for me. I'm a Canadian. I'm a centrist politically. I believe we should borrow the best from left and right. From the right, we should take the free enterprise market-based system, which is the most efficient way of distributing scarce goods. From the left, we should look for regulations that make sense and are based on science, because we do need regulations to protect everybody from unscrupulous people in business and politics. To me, this is not about left and right, but it is a fact that on this climate issue, the United States in particular has become very polarized around Democrats and Republicans on this subject. And the Democrats are, they, they might as well have signed a suicide pact, not just for their poli political future, but for the future of the economy of the United States, for all these people to be piling on this Green New Deal, which is a complete and utter ridiculous document. Regionally in Russia, a guy named Lysenko became Stalin's science czar during the period after the revolution there up until Khrushchev, up until the 1960s. And he sent thousands of scientists, particular geneticists, because they didn't believe in genetics. They sent them to die in the gulag. But this is a global phenomenon, this climate change issue. And this is as bad a thing that has happened to science 
in the history of science. It's taking over science, and it's taking it over with superstition and, and as I say, a kind of toxic combination of religion and political ideology. There is no truth to this. It is a complete hoax and a scam. And I, I could take you through Al Gore's film and show you hit the frauds that he perpetrated in there in terms of, 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 of claiming that CO2 was causing temperature to fluctuate when in fact it was temperature that was causing CO2 to fluctuate. And calling people who are questioning the dogma of climate change deniers is associating us with people who deny the Holocaust. That's why they, they chose that term. And the left is very clever with words. I, I've studied Trotsky and all through the leftist propagandists through history, and that's what we're dealing with right here. What we just heard is figuratively worth its weight in gold as a demonstration of the very phenomenon we've been focusing on for several weeks now, this whole left and right debate. Talk about having mixed feelings when I hear commentaries like this. I agreed with everything that we just heard Patrick Moore say with regard to the climate change propaganda itself. But at the same time, he is undermining the strength of his own argument and compromising with his opponents on the left. Moore kept shooting himself in the foot by refusing to take a stand on whether he was on the left or right. That's his only two choices. And, I, you know, this is a form of moral abandonment, particularly in the clear light of knowledge that Moore displayed on his observations about the evils of the left. And yet he says, I'm a centrist politically. I believe we should borrow the best from left and right. From the right, we should take the free enterprise market-based system, which is the most efficient way of distributing scarce goods, he says. But efficiency is not the reason free enterprise sits on the right. Free enterprise is part of capitalism, which is a moral system based on applying the moral principle of consent to the economic marketplace. Nobody forces you what to buy. You choose what you're going to buy. That's how we apply consent in an economic marketplace, and that's what free enterprise means, free from the government, free from someone else determining your choices, free from organized crime, all of those things. And that's the government's job is to keep it free. That's a form of regulation. From the left, he says, we should look for regulations that make sense and are based on science. Well, that's just a contradiction in terms. Because regulations that make sense and that are based on science are regulations that you will find on the right, not on the left. The choice is not between regulations on the left and no regulations on the right. That's how he almost sounds like he's thinking. The choice is between irrational regulations based on politics and self-interest and, and political concerns and crony politics. That's all on the left. Or the rational regulations on the right. Free enterprise itself requires regulations in the form of those laws that keep the marketplace free and free from, as well, fraud. <laughs> but to say I'm a centrist politically, I mean, this is an outrageous non-position to take. It's the extreme center about which we spoke two shows back. He has just lost the very war that he just complimented the left for waging, the war of words which, incidentally, was the title of our show three shows back. You know, when I hear stuff like this, coming from good people, I just want to pull my hair out. Or maybe it's just me reacting to my own guilt on this subject, because I, too, was committing the sin that I'm now accusing him of. 
Maybe because I learned the political polarity lesson the hard way. I too suffered from label phobia, <laughs> a real condition far more dangerous than the non-existent Islamophobia. And as I may have discussed on past shows, I went through what I called my libertarian days, and I spell that with a D-A-Z-E. Because when we first attempted to enter the political arena as libertarians, we were desperate to avoid being labeled either left or right or even center. I mean, the original Ontario Libertarian Party with which I got involved was called Unparty, whose slogan was, look neither right nor left, but up. Up, of course, meshing quite well with a party called Unparty, UP, right? Beautiful. Great marketing, real bad political positioning. In the end, I discovered that all that effort and time spent trying to redefine a political identity that represented freedom was not needed. I also recall when I was first invited on a CJBK radio by then talk show host Jim Chapman, who I had always considered to be a right-winger. He invited me in to do a regular feature on his show called Left, Right, and Center. Go figure, and it's the very show that you'll see archived on our site. This was all done in the 90s. And it was my initial expectation that I would be one of the the person positioned in the center, right? I'm the guy in the center. You're the right winger. After all, I'd been publicly disclaiming both the left and right for some time by then, which is partly why I was invited. But then I got a bit shocked that Jim placed me on the right and my opponent, Jeff Schlemmer, on the left and put himself in the center. As irony would have it, <laughs> many years later I thanked him for doing that, having learned over time that I was indeed on the right where freedom and capitalism properly belong. So that's how powerful and affecting playing with a single word can be in the affairs of human beings. You know, by artificially placing the leftist ideology of fascism on the right side of the so-called and non-existent political spectrum, the left, meaning primarily the Nazi-supporting Democratic Party in the United States following the Second World War, had successfully denied the true right and freedom any political identity because they moved fascism to the right and pushed freedom right off the scale. Therefore, people on the right, like myself in days past, and like Patrick Moore in that interview we just heard, have avoided being seen on the right because they know, quote-unquote, you know, things that ain't so, that there sits fascism one of the left's most evil incarnations of its ideologies, and nobody wants to be associated with that. So the moral motivation for avoiding being labeled on the right is itself right. It was moral, given so crucial and critical a misunderstanding of the political compass and how it actually works both in theory and in practice. I'm trying to save you guys some time if you're getting into this. You know, from the left, we should look for regulations that make sense and are based on science, says Moore. But regulations that make sense come from the right side of the polarity, not the left. The left operates on the primacy of consciousness, where make-believe and facts don't matter are routine to them. Chaos and disorder are the hallmarks of all leftist thinking and ideology. The right operates on the primacy of existence, which is why all things sensible and based on science come from a philosophy based first on the metaphysics of reality and on the epistemology of reason. And these are the essential defining characteristics of left and right. And this is not about semantics. If you get your political polarities mixed up and confused, expect a short circuit in the system that will stop everything from running as it should. And that's exactly what's happening. 
Listen to this. To me, this is not about left and right, says Moore, in complete denial of the rest of his comments, just like most people do when they say something like this. And this is the very reason why I considered Moore's comments on this count to be worth their weight in gold, because they're so illustrative of what everybody does. To me, this is not about left and right, says Moore, but we got hijacked by extreme leftists, or eco-fascists, as they are referred to today, he says. Well, the terrorist in New Zealand defined himself as an eco-fascist too, didn't he? And it sits on the left. To me, this is not about left and right, says Moore, but it is a fact that on this climate issue, the United States in particular has become very polarized around Democrats and Republicans on this subject. Well, then it's about left and right, isn't it? <laughs> and getting right into the polarization. There's only two choices. See, the reason he thinks this is so narrow-focused is because he's only thinking about his issue. I deal with every issue. And it's the same in every issue. doesn't matter whether you're talking about climate change or whether you're talking about terrorism or Islamophobia or politics in general, the economy. It's all the same principles. To me, this is not about left and right, says Moore, but the Democrats might as well have signed a suicide pact, not just for their political future, but for the future of the economy of the United States. Well, that makes it left, doesn't it? Isn't that what Robert Vaughn's been saying all the time? The left worships death and destruction. Then he says this interesting point in history. Regionally in Russia, Lysenko became Stalin's science czar, and he's the guy who sent scientists to die in the gulag. But, says Moore, to me, this is not about left and right. Really? And in light of all the negativity expressed about the left by Moore, he still has the desire to say that he's a centrist, when he didn't cite a single valid ideal on the left that he can support other than his belief that we need regulations, which is all screwed up to begin with. You see what he's done? He's already lost the battle. The traditional political spectrum, with communism on the left and fascism on the right, is a completely unworkable and irrational way of looking at politics, just like the leftists who contrived it. Not for a moment do I believe that those on the left give one hoot about the environment. Not for a moment do I believe that they care about Islam or Islamophobia, and certainly not about people in general. What they care about is political power over people. Not power to the people, power over people. And things like individual rights, freedom, capitalism, are not compatible with unrestricted political power. That's why eco-terrorists and people like Trudeau so admire countries like China. This is perfectly consistent with their belief systems and values. And whether consciously, unconsciously, subconsciously, deliberate, or out of ignorance and stupidity, all of these issues are mere leverage points in the greater goal of destroying Western civilization. Where am I? We asked the questions. Who are you? Captain Buck Rogers, United States Air Force. Who are you? What did he say? Something about a United States. The United States of America. It was an empire on the planet Earth some centuries ago. Those royal tutors gave you your money's worth. Well, you're from Earth, Kane. You should know better than I. The United States had perished almost, oh, 500 years ago. Well, that would account for his spacecraft, his clothes, the instruments.
His Majesty King John, granting by deed in Runnymede Meadow these rights, is now respectfully desired to impress his seal upon this Magna Carta. I, King John, do hereby impress my seal on this Magna Carta. But remember, it is the king who grants you these rights. At Runnymede, the Magna Carta was handed to King John on the end of a sword denying to royalty the right of unlimited taxation. Yet you know it was for us, the American people, to become the first in recorded history ever voluntarily to surrender our rights to private property. Oh, yes, we did. With an innocent-sounding constitutional amendment, the 16th, which says that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived. And we forgot to put any limit on the extent to which we could tax ourselves. Conceivably, we could be taxed out of all private property. We could be taxed not 70%, 80%, 90%, but 100%. We could awaken one morning and find that the government owns the farm and the house and the car and has a mortgage on the church, legally. Historically, whenever any nation has taxed its people more than 25% of their national income, initiative was destroyed and that nation was headed for economic eclipse. History says we'll roll forward on momentum for a little while, but we'd better get some more gas in the tank pretty quick. You see, ours is not the first by George good government to arise on the world stage. There have been several. Rome, Spain, and Greece, and China, and each enjoyed about 150 years at its zenith. That's just about our time in the New World. And then each decayed away. Not one of them was ever destroyed by anybody else's marching legions. Each rotted away morally, socially, culturally, economically, simultaneously. You know, one of the most cruel paradoxes of history is this. Because each was a good government, it bore bountiful fruit. When it bore bountiful fruit, the people got fat. And when they got fat, they got lazy. When they got lazy, they began to want to absolve themselves of personal responsibility and turn over to government to do for them things which traditionally they had been doing for themselves. At first, there appears to be nothing wrong asking government to perform some extra service for you, but if you ask government for extra services, government, in order to perform its increasing function, has to get bigger, right? And as government gets bigger, in order to support its increasing size, it has to what? Tax the individual more, so the individual gets littler. And to collect the increased taxes requires more tax collectors, so the government gets bigger in order to pay the additional tax collectors. It has to tax the individual more, so the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler. And the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler until the government is all-powerful. The individual is hardly anything at all. The government is all-powerful. The people are cattle. Now, some believe that the need is for a vigorous, strong man to arise on the scene to regulate and regiment the affairs of men. Yet history tells us there have been several such. Once upon a time, there was a nation great and powerful and good. She was suffering from the aftermath of war, from a depression. And then came upon the scene a leader, an idealist, self-confident, intolerant of criticism. Wisely, he limited his early activities to combating the financial depression. Nobody could argue with that. But in a while, he began to regulate business 
and establish new rules to govern commerce and finance. Some of them in diametrical disagreement with the God-made laws of supply and demand, but anybody who disagreed with those new rules was promptly fired. The national debt mounted alarmingly. Whenever anybody tried to tell him that governments, even as people, can go broke when they spend beyond their incomes, he said they just didn't understand deficit finance. Well, what do you say? Did he build on rock or on sand? I say on sand. I am satisfied with all my heart that if Uncle Sam ever does get whipped, here too, it will have been an inside job. It was internal decay, it was not external attack that destroyed the Roman Empire. Starting about 146 B.C., internal conditions in Rome were characterized by a welter of class wars and conflicts, street brawls, corrupt governors, lack of personal integrity and moral responsibility. And Rome passed into what history has recorded as the Dark Ages, lasting a thousand years. Just by turning to the left, the world has gone in circles. Now either we will profit from the errors of their ways, or it follows as the night the day, our children are going to have to relive the Dark Ages all over again. How come after thousands of years of experiment our new nation has come so far so fast? All this in less than 200 years. What is the secret of our success? Well, I think it had to do with a basic American's creed. Perhaps it never passed the pioneer's lips in this form, but if it had, I think he would have said something like this. I believe in my God, in my country, and in myself. I know that sounds like a trite, too simple thing to say, and yet it's a rare man today who will dare to stand up and say, I believe in my God and my country and in myself, and in that order. Well, sir, when that early pioneer turned his eyes toward the West, he didn't demand that somebody else look after him. He didn't demand a free education. He didn't demand a guaranteed rocking chair at eventide. He didn't demand that somebody else take care of him if he got ill or got old. There was an old-fashioned philosophy in those days that a man was supposed to provide for his own and for his own future. He didn't demand a maximum amount of money for a minimum amount of work. Nor did he expect pay for no work at all. Come to think of it, he didn't demand anything. That hard-handed pioneer just looked out there at the rolling plains, stretching away to the tall green mountains, and then lifted his eyes to the blue skies and said, Thank you, God. Now I can take it from here. Well, that spirit isn't dead in our country. It's dormant. It's been discredited in some circles, driven underground, but it isn't dead. It's just that a few seasons ago, politicians baiting their hooks with free barbecue and trading a Ponzi promise for votes began telling us we don't want opportunity anymore. We want security. We don't want opportunity, they said. We want security. They said it so often we came to believe them. We wanted security. And they gave us chains, and we were secure. Suddenly, with our constitutional guarantees depleted, with our national character eroding away, with our tax laws penalizing those who dare to prosper, with workers concentrating on how little they can get by with instead of how much they can produce, suddenly we looked overhead one day to discover that the first tin moon in space was a Russian accomplishment, that free men dragging their feet had been outdistanced by slave workers 
dragging their chains, and we were sore afraid. Perhaps this was a disguised blessing, too. Maybe a dramatic accomplishment by this Cold War adversary was necessary to get us off our dead centers and back to work again. If we can revive in ourselves, then in our youth, something of that basic American's creed, the horizon has never, ever been so limitless. For man stands now on the threshold of his highest adventure of all, his first faltering footsteps into space. Twenty years from today, half of the products you will be using in your everyday living aren't even in the dictionary yet. We've got it made. If we just keep on keeping on, we've got it made. And if we don't, we will follow those other great nation states of history into the graveyard of ignominious oblivion. History promises only this for certain. We will get exactly what we deserve. That may be one of the most powerful assessments of our situation today that I've ever heard on the Internet. An Internet that did not even exist when Paul Harvey wrote those words in 1965. We barely had color TV back then, over half a century ago. Or should I say only half a century ago. In the few hundred years of the rise of individual freedom and capitalism on this globe, we witnessed more true progress than in the total history of mankind's existence previous. When in retrospect, we can see for ourselves the incredible foresight exhibited by a writer like that, like Paul Harvey, then you have to attach some weight to his observations and arguments. Notice only once did Harvey refer to the political polarity. Quote, and Rome passed into the dark ages for a thousand years, just by turning to the left, the world has gone in circles. And you are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Visit www.justrightmedia.org or go directly to paypal.me slash justrightmedia to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. Paul Harvey covered a lot of territory in that short commentary. From taxation to space travel, and above all, perspective. Many historians see the United States as an anomaly of history, and that may sadly be true, but in a way not intended, or maybe it was. As Harvey notes, there had been several quote-unquote good governments in humanity's past, from Rome, Spain, Greece, China, and each enjoyed about 150 years at its zenith and then decayed away, morally, socially, culturally, and internally, end quote. And of course, that's the same process that is in play today. Robert Vaughn described that internal revolutionary process very forcefully and clearly on our show a couple of weeks back. And in my own immediate lifetime, I have seen changes in the social fabric around me that were unthinkable to me in my 20s and 30s. But when I consider how utterly alien my own lifestyle here in Canada has been, 
Compared to what my parents endured in Europe during and after the war, it's kind of hard to relate to just how quickly things can change, either for the better or for the worse. I have a couple of times on past shows tried to create a sense of historical perspective in terms of human time spans, mainly by measuring the time between today and the Roman Empire. For easy math, using a human lifespan of a hundred years, which is not an impossible age for many to reach, stretched end to end and ignoring overlapping generations, the Roman Empire existed only 20 to 25 lifetimes ago. Great nations and empires rarely make it past the 150-year mark, noted Paul Harvey, which means that in terms of my example I just gave, I'm only talking one and a half lifetimes. And I think the reason for that, for that short period of these great empires, if you want to call them that, is that the people who created the greatness failed to pass on their wisdom to their subsequent generations, who, like all creatures of tabula rasa, will enter the world by trying to continually reinvent the wheel over and over again, unless someone's already shown them how that wheel works. Because they've never seen a wheel otherwise. At least nobody knows what's been on this earth before they were born on this earth. We aren't born with the wisdom and knowledge of our parents. And this is where state-run education continually fails the test. Today our schools are teaching not wisdom, but ignorance, an enforced ignorance made necessary by the falsehoods of what is being taught. Every green deal is a red deal, the color of left. Islamophobia is a condition that only applies to the people who use that term as a political label. I don't fear political Islam any more than I fear quote-unquote Trudeau liberalism. I openly oppose both. And because they are the ones who resort to censorship tactics and other means of quelling any discussions about our political world, they're the ones who fear me and anyone else whose truths cannot be disputed or disproven. I'm always open to changing my mind, but the left doesn't even try. Instead, the left wants to close everybody's minds. When Paul Harvey referred to the God-made laws of supply and demand, he was referring to principles that cannot be changed or altered by anyone. They're eternal and immutable. You can't just ignore them by inventing some kind of a political ideology and thinking that these eternal principles will disappear. Ponzi promises for votes, security not opportunity, says Harvey. There is no guaranteed stability or security anywhere on this planet. But those who desire security must value freedom or that security will quickly elude them. Those who value security more than freedom will lose both. Those who value freedom more than security will gain both. That's a long, old statement that is as true today as the day it was first said. Placing security above freedom is an objective of the left. That's why we're slowly losing both. Placing freedom above security is the right way to value each. Now, no one's being asked or expected to have to pick between freedom or security. They're a package deal, and when they're not, they become the Ponzi scheme that Harvey cited. Those who got their freedom and security through taxes and government debt have left their children and descendants holding the bag that only offers them tyranny, fear, and insecurity in the extreme. 
Take a look at Venezuela, the latest in a series of socialist disasters that should be sitting there on our front pages every day as, look, we shouldn't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But, of course, we're doing that. All that oil and wealth and all that poverty, murder and oppression in their midst. It's a disgrace. Harvey says, history says, we'll roll forward on momentum for a little while, but we'd better get more gas in the tank pretty quick. Well, that gas he's talking about is individual freedom, life, liberty, property. Ayn Rand used to point out that when you ask about the have and the have-not countries in the world, what the have-not countries have not is freedom, because the rest takes care of itself. Now, on this side of our upcoming bumper, here's more great stuff from Patrick Moore, this time more focused on the climate change issue itself. And when we return on the other side, we'll be hearing Stephen Crowder and his gang on the recently debunked Great Lakes climate hysteria scandal. Do you think this has become almost a religion in the way that the, the radical uh, sector of the environmental movement thinks about humans, it, about everything else? Rebecca, it's not just a religion. It's kind of like a toxic mix of religion and ideology of politics and religion. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just absolutely toxic, as far as I, 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 as I believe. They are against humans. How, why would humans be against humans? As, especially when we have developed such an incredible civilization, that, and the idea that we are killing the earth is crazy. I mean, I guess too many people live in the middle of cities where they see too much concrete, but cities only take up 2% of the total landscape. The rest of the landscape is mostly green and beautiful, with clean water, clean air, and trees growing, and crops growing. And yet, they've got this idea that everything's been poisoned with pesticides or something. It is such a doomsday image that is put into our brains. The fact of the matter is, carbon dioxide, the thing, they keep calling it carbon, too. I really wish people would stop calling carbon dioxide carbon, because that's like calling water, which is H2O, hydrogen. We don't call water hydrogen. It's not a fair shorthand for carbon dioxide to call it carbon. Carbon is an element. Yes, carbon dioxide has the element carbon in it, but it also has two atoms of oxygen in it. It's a totally different thing from carbon. If it wasn't for carbon dioxide, there would be no life on Earth, because that is what plants use to make sugars with carbon dioxide and water, which is the ed energy basis for all of life on Earth. But the deep history, going back millions of years and even hundreds of millions of years, shows us that carbon dioxide has gradually diminished in the atmosphere and in the oceans, because it's been lost to the sediments on land and in, in the sea. During the last glaciation, which was only 20,000 years ago, CO2 sank to a level that was close to the level of, of causing death to plants. And inadvertently, by starting to use fossil fuels, we have actually saved life from an early demise. Because CO2 is the food for all of life. It's not pollution. And that's why the finding on CO2 by the EPA under Obama is such an important thing to reverse because when they ruled that CO2 was pollution, it is the biggest lie since people thought the Earth was at the center of the universe. This abomination that is occurring today in the climate issue is the biggest threat to the Enlightenment that has occurred since Galileo. Nothing else comes close to it. 
Today's Congress, though, is full of folks who stubbornly and automatically reject the scientific evidence about climate change. Not really. There's that Gallup poll that came out last month, which found one in four Americans is skeptical of all the effects of climate change and thinks this issue has been exaggerated. Lake Michigan, when measured just a few weeks measured? ago, was at its <laughs> lowest depth in any measured time in recent history. What we're seeing in global warming is the evaporation of our Great Lakes. It's a scary thing. He also enjoys a good leisure suit. So, <laughs> and here we have an article from USA Today. I remember this article. I think it was in 2012, 2013. They said it would take yeah. decades of rain. Decades Consistent of rain. rain. Heavy, heavy rain just yeah. to return to normal, okay? It took two years. Five, six years later, hmm. records. Record levels. Huh. Record levels. Here's something I want people to, to understand. If, if you were wrong about this, for, and you told the rest of America in 2012 and 2013 that they they were all unequivocally wrong if they didn't wholesale 100% accept your premise, you and you chastise them. Well, where are we now? Lake Superior is already near record high levels. Oh, By May, mm, could reach a record nice. that was set in the mid-1980s. Mm. Lake Erie could reach record highs later this spring. Lake Michigan and Huron also expected to be much higher, much, much higher than historically normal levels. It only took a few years. Yeah. What you do need to take into account here is that people base their lives yes. on your projections, and it turned out that none of it was true. You painted a doomsday climate change scenario. Farmers, city planners, taxpayers, they believe none of it was correct. No. So you can't just admonish them now. You can't just look down your nose at them now and say, well, I can't, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you believe us, you silly bumpkin? Well, because of you. you I don't believe you. You lied last time. You, you don't believe science? Again. No, no, no. This is like the Fire Festival. Just over you. Yeah, this is the Fire Fest. This <laughs> well, is Fire Fest, too. I, I mean, like, I, fire. I, I, fire. I believe science. I don't believe politicians because, right. I mean, what, what exactly has the left not tried to claim is because of climate change? Legal it's immigration, true. refugees, climate change. Yeah. Uh, Muslims raping people in Europe, climate, climate change. Yeah, There's hot. terrorism, ISIS, Fire climate fest. change. Climate change, change. Yeah. Climate change. Uh, so it didn't turn out to be true with the Great Lakes, but you know what did turn out to be true, by the way? Uh, energy plants being closed and yep. tens of thousands mm -hmm. of jobs lost due to government manipulation, price fixing, goods and commodities. There were taxes levied on all Americans disproportionately. By the yeah. way, disproportionately affecting the middle class as well when yeah. you talk about a lot of yeah. these so-called <laughs> green taxes. At this point, you'd be better off saying, okay, well, maybe we were incorrect, but recalibrate. Instead, what the left continues to do is just say, well, the science is settled, as you see. All the talk about climate change is really analogous, isn't it? It's really symbolic. It's symbolism. It's not the weather that they're talking about. It's about politics that they're talking about and nothing else. The climate that is changing is our political climate. Remember what was said at the UN. The climate change campaign is all about eliminating and destroying capitalism. They didn't even hide their goals. And getting us to argue about CO2 is a distraction. I don't believe for a moment that there's a politician anywhere who gives one damn or hoot about climate change. They care about votes. And if the majority is stupid, they will rule stupidly. So when Patrick Moore asked, why would humans be against humans, especially when we've developed such an incredible civilization? Well, the answer to that is because the humans on the left have abandoned the single thing that makes humans human. And that's reason. This is what is at the core of all things left. The left is opposed to civilization in the sense that we know it. Stop thinking that all people share the same goals and values. It just ain't so. So don't appease. Don't, don't try to appeal to both sides because they're very different incompatible things. When Moore quite correctly says 
This abomination that is occurring today in the climate issue is the biggest threat to the enlightenment that has occurred since Galileo and refers to a toxic mix of religion and ideology of politics and religion. Well, he's quite literally defining the characteristics of the left. So don't give me any of this, I'm a centrist politically. It's becoming increasingly obvious to me that those who consider themselves to be on the right of the so-called political spectrum are either in a state of despair or outrage or both. They have seen the country they thought they were living in morph into something quite different from what they were used to. Instead of feeling free to express legitimate views, whatever they might be, people are feeling intimidated and frightened, less willing to speak out. Imagine that in this age of open communications in the way that we have it today. They see a constant and relentless attack on their values by the very opposing ideas and values of the left that we only decades ago sent soldiers in our armies to fight against. Increasingly, People are no longer being treated equally as individuals before and under the law and are instead being judged on the basis of their collective identities. And yes, it's an inside job. And no strategy or tactic is as powerful as the label gun that shoots right-wing labels. With labels as ammunition, those targeted by the label gun cannot defend themselves unless they learn how to disarm those labels with an even more powerful weapon, clear definitions, and a commitment to discovering the truth. And any political conflict is always strictly a polarized one. But that polarity, which is an intellectual polarity to those on the right, has been turned into a racial and cultural polarity by those on the left, who are incapable of recognizing the difference between good and bad ideas because they've been left so uninformed, misinformed, and uneducated by the ideologues of the left who control our educational institutions. So how do we fight the left effectively? Well, that's something we'll be getting into in the very near future on future shows, but the first thing we have to do is stop being afraid of being right. The simple retort to that label is to shout proudly, yes, I am on the extreme right, right alongside freedom, capitalism, and the values that created what we call Western civilization. Got a problem with that? Anyone can be a frontline fighter in the war faced by all civilizations. Don't wait for others to do the job for you, because odds are they're waiting for you to make the first move. And if you're not sure where to start, well, you can start by joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So you can't be at that meeting and here at the same time. True. Not without help, you can't. Well, thank you, Newkirk. Makes it easier when I don't have to ask for volunteers. He's standing for you, Colonel. I don't even know these underground leaders. Neither do I, and they don't know me. I'm just a code name to them, Papa Bear. The Dusseldorf Underground Unit, North Star, wants help in knocking out rail yards. Yeah, well, good luck to them, I say. They asked for the meeting, London okayed it. Just listen to their plan and get back here with it. Simple. Well, if it's so bloody easy, why didn't somebody else go? Well, you volunteered. Wait, in this war, it's first come, first serve. Right. It's one of the principles we're fighting to protect. 